Mosul, will the battle determine the future for the whole of Iraq? Cyber attack, the Ministry of Defence says its military systems will be protected. The Royal Navy's tracking Russian warships through the English Channel, but what's Putin's plan? Fear and loathing in Las Vegas, was it Donald Trump's last throw of the dice? And can you crack the GCHQ puzzle book? The long-awaited operation to take back the Iraqi city of Mosul from so-called Islamic State militants is now into its fourth day. Iraqi Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi says the mission is progressing faster than planned. The Iraqi army has been moving from the south and Kurdish fighters have launched an offensive east and north of the city. So will what happens in Mosul determine the rest of the country's future? Well, last night I spoke, spoke to Michael Pregent, a former US intelligence officer and now adjunct fellow at the Hudson Institute, a U.S. think tank. I come here about every three months to, to tour the battlefield and, and talk to Peshmerga fighters about their concerns. I used to be an embedded advisor with the Peshmerga, so I visited uh, Bashika, is a place uh, where ISIS held territory there. They'd emptied out the town, and that offensive is supposed to take place tomorrow to recapture that town. And then today I went uh, past the front lines in uh, Mahrur, which is uh, south of Mosul, but also north of where another ISIS stronghold is, the vicinity of Hawija. Just to talk to the Peshmerga fighters to get a sense of the battlefield, there were also Iraqi army units present, and I was actually in a uh, a meeting where there was coordination uh, between an artillery unit, an Iraqi artillery unit, and the Peshmerga. One of the requirements of of the, the Peshmerga is that when Iraqi army forces move into the area, that they don't fly sectarian flags like the Yahussein flag or the uh, Imam Ali flag. Uh, yet they were still present on Iraqi vehicles as they move into this area. And it has a very alienating effect on the Sunni population as the Iraqi army, that's supposed to be a nationalist army, is moving uh, towards Mosul as part of this offensive, carrying these these flags. They have a, It has an alienating effect on the, on the Sunnis that we need to fight ISIS, and it also shows a disconnect in the different units participating, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it does. Um, so just explain to us then what different factions there are approaching on the and taking part in the onslaught on Mosul and what their differing objectives are. Well, that that's the most interesting part. Uh, the Peshmerga have an objective. It's to participate to demonstrate to Baghdad and the United States that the Peshmerga is a willing partner to fight Daesh. The Iraqi army has a mission to defeat ISIS, but the Shia militias and the Hashid al-Shabi have a, a mission to punish or to seek revenge for supporting ISIS. And they're taking it all the way back to a conflict that happened almost a thousand years ago. In that, um, with Ali, yes. In that light of what you're describing, of all the different objectives of the people who are taking the battle to Mosul, what do you think the biggest danger is? Well, my biggest concern, and it is a danger, is that the Sunni population in Mosul, a 1.5 million uh, strong population, isn't being asked to participate. There's currently an underground in Mosul where Sunnis are actually targeting ISIS. And 
Peshmerga and Iraqi army units have already said that Sunni civilians are providing them with actionable intelligence to go after ISIS positions and even ISIS leaders in certain homes. That needs to be cultivated. That's that's how you have an effective strategy against ISIS. If we allow the population of Mosul, the residents of Mosul, to participate in providing intelligence and welcoming in these forces, we don't have a Ramadi. We don't have a Fallujah where you destroy buildings, where you exit a population and add them to the refugee crisis. There's no reason for Mosul to become part of the refugee crisis if this is done right. But everything I've heard so far, you know, the Peshmerga are going to push from the east, but they're going to stop. The Iraqi army is going to push in from the south, and they're going to move in. But what what, what really looks like hap- what's happening is corridors are being coordinated to push uh, refugees out or, or citizens out along these corridors. But, but most dangerous is... It allows ISIS an escape through Talafur, Sinjar, into Syria. So this looks like more of an operation to push ISIS out and to also push the civilian population out and declare victory. The the benchmark for victory has been so low in this strategy. It's uh, depopulate a city, rubble a city, and then replace the ISIS flag in the middle of the town square with an Iraqi government flag, an Iraqi flag. That's not a sustainable strategy to defeat ISIS. It simply resets the conditions. So when people talk about the day after Mosul, what we're really looking at is the day after Mosul is actually the day before ISIS came into Mosul in 2014, in that you have a disenfranchised Sunni population, more distrustful now than ever of Baghdad, and also more distrustful now than ever of the United States. The in way supporting you de- these militias. Sorry to, to interrupt you, but the way you're describing the way it's progressing at the moment and what you're predicting makes it sound that we're going to look back at this and say it was a failure in Mosul. That it, it's, it's a rushed operation. The, the government of Baghdad has two and a half years to build a Sunni force to retake Mosul of people or from, uh, from citizens of Mosul itself. You have to remember the 2nd Iraqi Army Division was in Mosul. When I served in the 2nd Iraqi Army Division as an advisor, it was half Peshmerga and half Sunni. Prime Minister Maliki made it a Baghdad loyal unit. He purged effective Sunni commanders and Kurdish commanders and replaced it with Baghdad loyalists, many from, many from Baghdad and many from Shia militias. So, yes, I'm very concerned that this is simply resetting the conditions if it's not done right. And it's now you have the Turkish element as well. So we talked about all of these competing uh, entities coming into Mosul. Um, everybody seems to have ISIS as the third priority, with priority one and two being to ensure that the other groups don't gain more territory or more influence in Mosul. And the Sunni population is at the bottom of the list. Why is what happens in Mosul important in the future, to the future of Iraq? If, if Mosul isn't done right, uh, Mosul is the second largest city in Iraq. Some say it's Basra, but it, it's Mosul. In this case, it's, it's the most important city in northern Iraq. And this population center, this is where the former Ba'athists went. This is, has always been a hotbed of insurgency, whether it be al-Qaeda, whether it be other groups, and, and now with ISIS. If this isn't done right, it still has that disenfranchised military-age male population of more than 300,000, in some cases up to a million, that are looking towards Baghdad, or look look at Baghdad as an enemy, look 
to the Peshmerga as an invading force. Look to the United States as a, as a tacit supporter of this uh, sectarian government. Again, this is the view from a Sunni military Jamal in Mosul. It, it simply resets the conditions. It doesn't fix anything. It's a, it's a rush to have a political victory for both Prime Minister Abadi and President Obama. But if this isn't done right, and I don't think it's going to be done right, it simply resets the conditions for ISIS 2.0, Al-Qaeda 3.0, or some other Sunni insurgent group to continue to destabilize northern Iraq. Well, that was Michael Pregent, a former U.S. intelligence officer and advisor to the Peshmerga, speaking to me from Erbil in Iraq. Well, BFBS defense analyst Christopher Lee was listening to that. Christopher, hello. From what Michael just said, it does sound like this could all go horribly wrong. Well, yeah, it could go horribly wrong for in, in the longer term as well. Um, just to recap, um, incidentally, I think that every uh, every prime minister and president who is in the glorious coalition in Iraq ought to listen to what he just said because that is the most concise analysis you will ever hear of, of, of the whole Mosul thing as it takes off. And don't forget we're, we're, we're miles from Mosul at the moment. This is right at the beginning. This is knocking off a few villages. It, it, he was saying to me actually after the interview that it could be another month before... Oh, easily. Oh, e easily another month. And we're talking of a couple of years before you do this. Now, uh, what we have here, and don't forget, and he mentioned, uh, for example, Sunni 1.5. Everybody should remember that what you've got in Baghdad are Shias, not Sunnis. And therefore, this is, a, this is still the bloodthirsty or as the, as the blood revenge. We're back to the sectarian division. Blood revenge against uh, Saddam Hussein, who was a Sunni, mm -hmm. right? That's the first thing. I think what we also have to remember is, is that once you are in, uh, uh, bag, uh, in, in Mosul, you've got to understand why you're there. The easiest way to resolve Mosul, the first phase of it, is to let, the, uh, let uh, ISIS, let them escape. And then Which that's is what the, he was predicting. Yeah, and that's it? that's the easiest way of doing it. When you take Mosul, you then have the biggest problem: how do you hold it? How do you put it to work? How do you govern it? How do you give the 1.5 Sunnis the confidence that you, government mm. in Baghdad, are actually on their side? And then, most importantly, how do you defend it? And at the moment, there is no sign that you could. Still to come, the final TV showdown for Trump and Clinton in Las Vegas. And can you crack the GCHQ puzzle book? Cyber is now the front line of all the defence systems of the major powers. Today, the Defence Secretary, Sir Michael Fallon, has announced that £265 million is to be spent to protect Britain's military systems from cyber attack. It will be spent on cyber vulnerability investigations, checking military systems and equipment to see if they can withstand an attack. Well, let's talk to Professor Michael Clark, formerly the Director General of the Royal United Services Institute. Good to speak to you today, Michael. I understand understand the idea is to find any holes in our digital defences before any enemy does. Uh, will it be too late, though? Uh, no, it's, uh, this is a constantly moving uh, programme, as it were, because this cyber vulnerability investigations programme, there's quite a lot of money to spend on it, 260-odd million, <clears throat> will fit in with the Cyber Security Operations Centre. And you realise that, that all of the new systems that we're procuring, I mean, you know, 160 billions worth over the next 10 years, is increasingly vulnerable to cyber attack, partly because of the nature of our societies. We're becoming all, for, you know, much more digitised. We're looking at the Internet of Things. <clears throat> and however much you try to air gap 
uh, a weapon system. The fact is that a system depends on the social infrastructure, you know, the roads that lead into military bases and the telephones that people use on military bases. So there's all sorts of of increasing vulnerabilities as we depend more and more on cyber in our own societies. Is it possible to cyber-proof our society? No, it isn't. Um, and, and the best you can do, which is what the government is trying to do, and I, I think you know the, the UK government is ahead of many others in this respect, probably most, um, is actually think think through the cyber vulnerabilities early at the uh, uh, conception stage of new systems, and then build it in. And if you have to build it in halfway through, or when a system is already up and running, then of course it's much more expensive. And I think we're we're quite good at doing that. We've had a, a cyber policy going back to 2009, and nobody had a cyber policy in 2009. It, it wasn't very much to start with, I have to say. But over the last six, seven years, it has beefed up quite a lot. And although we're not spending nearly as much money on it as I think most people feel we should, it is conceptually actually quite a good policy. It's quite a mm. good programme. It's been one of the sharpest accelerations in defence spending, hasn't it? Um, do you yeah. think, I mean, as you say, 2009, no one was really thinking about it. And this has been particularly something that you've taken an interest in. Uh, yes, I was in, involved in the National Security Forum that was in, in existence then from the, with the Prime Minister uh, after 2008. <clears throat> and I remember we were given a, a draft of the first cybersecurity um, program itself for two, that was launched in 2009. And most of us said on the forum, actually, look, this is, just, this is not a policy. This is just a decision to have a policy. Um, but it, 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 it was a conceptual sort of thing. But it developed since then. And, and the, the big change, I think, was 2010, the Defence Review, when it was clear that even though we were cutting back uh, funding for defence across the board, you know, 8 or 9%, in fact, they knew then that, that we'd have to spend much more on the C4 I-Star area and much more on cyber. Mm. And I think you have seen some of that shift of resources towards those areas. As I say, not enough, but you can see resources moving into both of those areas over the last five years. What about our expertise? You were saying that we're doing pretty well. How good are we? In technical terms, as good as the United States, but just smaller. I mean, GCHQ, which is which looks after most of the cyber that, that runs the rest, that goes through the rest of defence, and that that didn't used to be the case 20 years ago. But now GCHQ does a lot of work trying to protect our military systems. Um, that's as good as anything in the world. Um, but again, it's much smaller than the National Security Agency in the US. Um, and we've got you know, certain lessons to teach of us and also lessons to absorb. So at a, at a technical expertise level, I'm very confident. Um, I'm far less confident about the sheer extent to which we can do this. And I'm far mm. less confident about how far our broader society, business and industry, is really cyber secure, because there's only so much the government can do in trying to persuade everybody to get on board. Can you imagine at the moment, I mean, we're all focused on this as perhaps the biggest threat at the moment. Can you focus what, can you imagine what the next thing we should be working on now that in 10 years we'll be talking about? Well, it will, I think it will be the sort of, my, my guess is that it's the secondary infrastructures. It's all very well protecting a, a you know, missile system or a weapon system um, in its operations, making sure its command and control is secure. That's one thing. But how do you prevent uh, sabotage? How do you prevent espionage of the systems that are being developed now? Because so much of our military system really comes from the civilian sector. And so you are dependent on this deep infrastructure, which is increasingly digitized. And if our, our foreign adversaries, particularly, let's say it, let's, the Chinese, they think very long term about this. If they can get bugs and inside areas or get into inside areas now in the infrastructures that support the, 
military, what will become military um, technologies in 10 years' time, then they've got an inside track. That's the thing that I worry about. Professor Michael Clark, good to speak to you as ever. Thank you for your time today. Now, Royal Navy destroyers have been sent to manmark the Russian warships that are passing through the English Channel today. Uh, Christopher, you mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. What ships are we talking about and what are they up to? We're talking about a battle group. That means you've got an aircraft carrier, uh, an advanced cruiser, probably missile, uh, missile carrying cruiser, cruise missiles, uh, and then you'll have destroyer escorts. Um, it's come from the Northern Fleet. There are four fleets in the in, in, in the Russian Navy: the Northern Fleet, the Baltic Fleet, the Black Sea Fleet, and the uh, fleet in the Far East. This is the biggest and the most important. This is the first time this battle group has ever set sail in the formation it's in now. And that battle group has got ship that's never been out for 26 years, but it's, it's an aircraft carrier. It's the only aircraft carrier they've got. What they're doing. They're not coming down just to bother us. They're not interested in us at all, although they make sure we know where they're going to be because they want to show it off. Mm. They're going round to the Mediterranean. They're going round to the eastern Mediterranean. The Russians have got ten ships in the Mediterranean at the moment. They're going to bolster the, the, uh, the, the, the main part of this is the, is the Kirov, Peter the Great, it's called, uh, is, not the, is not the carrier, it's the other ship. That is going to take command of the whole of the eastern Mediterranean. And eventually what, uh, what I think President Putin would like to have is to go back to the 70s and have five fleets and have a Mediterranean fleet and with some like the Kirov in command of the whole thing. That is establishing... A creeping influence, basically. No, you, no, that's a arrived influence. <laughs> that says, I can, for example, from an aircraft carrier, fly an aeroplane without wondering where I'm going to go back to. It's the same thing that we had to do, the Royal Navy had to do, in the Falklands War, of Can course. we just very briefly talk about uh, the humanitarian pause? We're talking about Russia in the fighting in Aleppo. Um, what's brought this about? Well, it's brought about because uh, we had we have great pressure from governments actually saying, listen, uh, we want you to pause, so you can pause for humanitarian reasons, and it, it does your case rather good, and therefore we can get back to what we weren't doing, and that's talking to each other. Uh, but the rebels don't want to pause. The, uh, Assad doesn't want to pause and Russia doesn't mind uh, about a pause at the moment because what it's doing is put, putting its biggest asset into place and after that it doesn't have to worry about pauses. Now, last night saw the final <laughs> presidential TV debate before America goes to the polls on Tuesday the 8th of November. The showdown in Las Vegas saw Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump clash over the battle against Islamic State. They were asked whether they would put US troops into the vacuum to make sure IS doesn't come back, while Hillary Clinton said she's against it. I will not support putting American soldiers into Iraq as an occupying force. I don't think that is in our interests, and I don't think that would be smart to do. In fact, I think that would be a big red flag waving for ISIS to reconstitute itself. And Donald Trump used the question to attack how the current operation to recapture the city of Mosul from IS forces had been conducted. We had Mosul. But when she left, when she took everybody out, we lost Mosul. Now we're fighting again to get Mosul. About three months ago, I started reading that they want to get the leaders, they're going to attack also. Whatever happened to the element of surprise? Well, Simon Marks is from Feature Story News and joins us from Sin City. Simon, good to speak to you. Um, how, how are the exit polls looking? 
uh, not uh, very uh, positive for Donald Trump. Uh, we saw instant polling in the hours after the debate was conducted that suggested that Hillary Clinton uh, won it with 52% to 39% in her favor. I would uh, pour some cold water over some of those instant polls. You don't really know how the public has reacted to these debates until uh, the cold light of dawn the next day. And I think pollsters will be gauging reaction over the next several days. But look, Donald Trump went into this debate eight points behind Hillary Clinton in uh, the national polls. She's edged ahead of him in most of the critical battleground states where this election will ultimately be won or lost, those states that sometimes vote Republican, other times vote Democratic. And he needed a very, very big win at this debate mm. in order to score what would be a historical precedent of turning that kind of advantage around. So it was, she, it was, it was uh, enjoys not clear he got it. So was the the last throw of the dice, was it, for Donald Trump? Oh, I think definitely the last throw of the dice. And uh, the Trump people know that. I mean, if you look behind the curtain at these two campaigns, you can see what they understand about the contours of this election race. The Clinton campaign, privately behind the scenes, is preparing for government. They're measuring up the curtains at the White House. Hmm. They're deciding who should be Secretary of State and who should be Secretary of Defense. The Trump campaign, they're not doing any of that behind the scenes. They instead appear to be making plans for Donald Trump to launch a new TV news channel. Uh, they know that this election, barring some extraordinary last-minute surprise, and we've certainly had plenty of those over the last 15 months, but at this point it looks like this election is lost to them. Did you stay up to watch it, Christopher? I did. I did. I quite like this. I, mean, I You know, I... I've been staying up to watch everything from, uh, I don't know, from the beginning of Reagan, I suppose. I tell you what particularly interests me now, um, it's, it's what happens, uh, what happens to people like John Kerry. Uh, when you, you, you have an election, November the 8th, you've got a new president, uh, and then you don't get anything done because until the inauguration, you've still got to carry on with your foreign policy, which is most important at the moment. Could be, because it takes a long time to get a new man confirmed. We could have John Kerry there, couldn't we, uh, uh, Simon, for another year? I think that that's... Uh, I, I'm not sure that she <laughs> would do that, uh, uh, Chris. I, I think that it's highly likely she'd want to bring her own people in, especially to a State Department where she knows every nook and cranny uh, of the building. Uh, look, I think that she's certainly hoping that by the time Inauguration Day comes around, the operation in Mosul has succeeded. She's indicated as much that she hopes that by the time she gets into office, uh, Islamic State is not so much of a threat to the United States as it is today. Uh, I mean, there's another mm. uh, senior figure here named John worth keeping an eye on, and that's John McCain. How's he going to fare and... in his re-election battle in Arizona? Lots of questions for uh, lots of the senior Simon... uh, figures who have been part of the furniture here for a and long time. And we shall ask you to answer those questions in future. Thank you for your time today, Simon, Simon Marks. Now, GCHQ, the UK Signals Intelligence and Cyber Security Agency, has published a book of puzzles. It features 140 pages of codes, puzzles and challenges created by their expert code breakers. Here's an example of one of them. M lives with Q and is fond of G, very fond of G, actually. He's married to J and they have two children, C and V. So, what do the children call M? Christopher, you've got the answer to this one, haven't you? Well, I don't know. I immediately thought Delta, but that's for Dad or something like that. 
Mm. Well, we can we can clear this up because we've got Mike, who is one of the authors of this puzzle book. He's from GCHQ. Um, is he right, Mike? Or should I call uh, you well, Delta? Uh, no, Mike's fine. Uh, Delta's not quite there. Mm. But he's not the like right father. Well, what what is another name for father? Well, I thought dad. You see, that's why I said Delta. Yes, but there, there are there's another word. Pa. Papa. Well, cl- Papa. Ah. Papa. Right. So, yeah, um, do you want to go into the explanation of so this? So you could have it... had Papa as well as Delta, though. You could have had Delta, couldn't you? Well, Papa works because it's Mike. Yes, Mike, it's, Papa. It's, it lives, Mike lives in Quebec. Yes. <laughs> yes. Go on. And, lives, and he's very fond of golf. Mm-hmm. He's married yeah. to Juliet. Yeah. And they have two children, Charlie and Victor. So it's all the, obviously, the NATO phonetic alphabet. Where did the idea come from for this book? Um, well, it's the actual book itself, the idea sprang from the success we had last year uh, with the puzzles that uh, started out with a little challenge that was in the director's Christmas card, um, which, um, so we started out with a little challenge that went on to multi-layered thing online and uh, all sorts of different puzzles that ultimately led to a, a very, very difficult problem that uh, thousands of people uh, tried to attack, and it was, it was great fun seeing it sort of unfold. Uh, that was a big success, and um, well, the the idea of the book really arose because it became, you know, we we have a long history of people here at GCHQ setting puzzles of this type to each other for in their spare time for for fun. We have this enormous compendium of of uh, puzzles, and uh, we thought, well, we ought to compile the best of the bunch and make a book out of it. Do you have to get have a maths degree to get the answers to this? <laughs> Really not, no. I mean, this is something that people... I think it's a slight misconception. I um, Having a math... I mean, I think, to sound terribly mathy, there's a bit of a correlation between people who are good at math and these sorts of things, but it's absolutely not the case that mm-hmm. you must have a math degree because it's, it's about lateral thinking. It's about puzzle solving, seeing around corners, seeing, looking at something and thinking, well, I can see superficially what they might mean by this, but what are they really getting at? And uh, it's that sort of capacity to look around corners. I mean, people who solve cryptic crosswords every day are doing the same sort of thing. Mm. Uh, they're not mathematicians. The no, they're the classicists, though. Well, exactly. And 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 uh, there, there is a, super, there's a there's a huge range of people who are terrifically good at this. And it's it's I think because of the, sort of the history of problems in the maths area that we sort of you you know we, we're known for, I suppose. Um, it does it doesn't seem surprising that that sort of person finds himself setting puzzles, but there's a a fellow I work with who's a a, a language graduate, and he's tremendously good at solving these, Uh, so really, really, absolutely not not required to have Mm. that math degree. Now, Mike, the book includes a competition. What's all that about? How does it work? Well, rather like the... um, Christmas card challenge. We we the idea is to have some sort of graduated diff- levels of difficulty. Um, so you start off with something that most people could look at and think they can have a go at solving. Last year it was the thing in the Christmas card. Um, the, this year it's a Sudoku. Um, and once you've had a look at the Sudoku, I mean most people know how to have a go at a Sudoku, so people can try to solve that. Mm-hmm. At that point it goes on to a slightly harder problem, and from there it goes to increasingly difficult level of problems. To what, ex- uh, to, what ex- to what extent could this be useful in, in detecting uh, new brilliance amongst perhaps some of the people who might buy this book? Um, well, I think I think there are plenty of brilliant people out there who have an enormously entertaining time like we do mm. uh, solving these sorts of problems. 
Um, I think really all we want to do is to is to, to raise awareness of uh, of the, the the charity that we're promoting. Yes, and to tell us a bit more about that. It's enjoy themselves really. Um, so the charity is the the Heads Together, um, which is a campaign spearheaded um, by the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge and Prince Harry, and uh, its its aim is to is to as I say change the conversation about mental health from um, fear and shame to confidence and support, and we're very much behind that idea here at GCHQ. Um, and the more we can do to help that, 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 that promote that uh, way of thinking, the better. This is just a nice little vehicle for doing that. Mike, I, I mean, I know you said a few times about the kind of fun you have at work, sort of setting yes. you know, puzzles for each other. I mean, yes. I suppose it must be quite competitive to outdo each other. Well, I think there, there is. You know, the, the thing is, you have to bear in mind that it's terrifically easy to set a completely impossible puzzle. It no, is easy. No, it is easy to set a puzzle that nobody can solve. But then what's the fun in that, really? The, idea, the, the real skill is to set a puzzle that's just at the edge of people's capabilities. I mean, do you ever sort of set a puzzle and think, I'm going to set it so that only this one person I know might be able to crack it and no. nobody else? No, because if you did that, then no, you'd never be asked to set a puzzle ever again. <laughs> you'd never be able to do your puzzle. So, you know, you, 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 yeah, you have to keep people happy. So I think when we do publish these sorts of puzzles, we make sure, as we have done with the book, that there's a range of levels of difficulty so that, mm. that everybody who's interested in puzzles can have a crack at it. Good to speak to you, Mike. Thank you very much Thank for your time. Much. And the book's out today, and GCHQ will be tweeting more puzzles from their Twitter account, which is at GCHQ. Christopher, what's your puzzle? Yeah, try this one. What's the connection between last Friday and the letters Bravo, Alpha, Golf, Golf? On to next week. At BFBS SITREP. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.